Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 12. Gospel of John, chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 27 through 36. And considering the light of the glory of God. John, chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. The light of the glory of God. Give attention to God's holy word. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for shining the light of your gospel upon us and for giving us the holy scriptures which teach us the truths of your gospel. We come now, O Lord, during this time of worship and during this time of preaching to pay our homage unto you by offering up our hearts to you as living sacrifices, asking you, O Lord, to cause that fire from heaven to fall down upon our hearts, the Holy Spirit sent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might understand this word, and in understanding this word, we might know you. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Sunlight is a marvelous thing. Sunlight is the source of life on this earth, at least from a biological standpoint. If you don't have sunlight, you don't have any life on planet earth. The sun is such an amazing creation because the light of the sun shines all the time. There's no dimness. There's no, there's no uh, degrading of the sun's light. We know that the light of the sun is used as a picture of the glory of God. Psalm 19 describes the sun running its course across the whole arc of heaven. And every nation under earth is under the light of the sun and receives light from the sun. But sometimes, like today, the clouds come and, and obscure the light of the sun. You can tell this afternoon that the sun was shining, it was daytime, but the light of the sun was diffused through the clouds. It was not quite as bright as it might have been without the clouds. And so the light of the sun shines upon us, and sometimes it's hidden from us, and other times 
It's not. The glory of God is in many ways like the light of the sun. God's glory is shining all the time in His works. It is all the time sending forth its message to the nations of men. But, because of sin, because of our wayward ways, the clouds of disobedience obscure the light of God's glory in His created works, and we can't see the glory of God as clearly as we would like to. You know, the light of the sun shines at all times, and you can go out and walk in the sun. It won't really harm you. But sometimes, maybe you did this when you were a child. I did this a couple of times. Sometimes you can take a magnifying glass or or a certain shaped mirror and capture the light of the sun and focus that light so it begins to burn with a hot heat. You can start a fire that way if you know what you're doing. And so that magnifying glass focuses the light of the sun So it becomes unmistakable that the light is shining. Well, likewise with the glory of God, because it has been obscured by the clouds of sin, His glory shines most particularly. In fact, it's the only way to see the light of God's glory is in the work and person of His Son, It is in the work and person of Christ that the light of the glory of God comes into a sharp, burning focus. And it is only through the work and the person of the Son that the light of the glory of God can actually be discerned. You know that the glory of God shines over all the nations because all the nations have a religion. All the nations worship something. And this is a response to the glory of God that they discern. But all the nations without Christ worship a false god. They worship a false deity. They engage in the abominations of the nations of Canaan because they don't have the light of the glory of God. They don't have the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see in this passage is that the glory of God the Father shines on men in the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of God the Father shines on men in the work and person of Christ. There's two sections to our uh, passage this evening. Section one is the work of Christ, verse 27 through 33. And then the person of Christ, verses 34 through 36. The work of Christ, verses 27 through 33, and the person of Christ, verses 34 through 36. Now we begin to look at our passage, and we begin by looking at the work of Christ. But before we get into the passage, we need the context. We need to be reminded of the context. As we've been noting in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, this is the eve of the crucifixion. It is Passover week. The crowds are gathering in Jerusalem to partake of this great sacrament of the Old Testament. And this sacrament of the Old Testament was a sign and seal of the Lamb of God who would come. Christ is now on the eve of fulfilling everything that the Passover Lamb represented. Christ is aware of the time in which He is. He's aware that the hour is upon Him in the immediately preceding section 
Greeks have come to him from all over the Roman Empire, and they've said, we want to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ then says in the immediately preceding section, the hour has come that the Son of Man must be glorified. So Christ, as we enter into the section we're about to enter into, Christ is fully aware of what's coming. And what's coming is the glory of the Father in the crucifixion of the Son, and Christ is tempted. Christ is horribly tempted. And look at what he does in the midst of this temptation. Verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Christ, as we begin to look at his work and how the glory of the Father shines in the work of Christ, Christ, on the eve of this work, is tempted to abandon the cross. And this temptation, this feeling that Christ gives expression to, is a natural human feeling. Men, because we were made in the image of God, naturally love to live. Life is a good thing. And death is the end of life. And so men naturally fear death. There's nothing sinful in that by itself. Well, Christ is a full human man. He is a man just like you and I, except without sin. When Christ sees his death approaching, he has a natural fear of it. But Christ's temptation at this point, the troubling of his soul, is far deeper than your fear or my fear might be when our death approaches. You see, Christ not only knew that he was going to die, he knew the kind of death that he was going to die, a shameful crucifixion. But not only did he know the physical torments that he was going to go under, he also, better than any man who has lived, understood the holiness of God, the hatefulness of sin, and the weight and power of the wrath of God that was about to descend upon him. Christ understood this as the Son of God better than anybody else who's ever lived. And as Christ is looking at the cross, he says, my soul is troubled because I know what this is going to mean. I know that I'm going to atone for the sins of all the elect, and I am going to suffer the unmitigated wrath of God. His soul is rightly troubled. His soul is troubled and he's tempted to walk away. Notice what he says in the next section. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. You see, Christ, in the midst of his temptation, recognizes that this temptation is contrary to his office as our Redeemer. Because you see, the office of Christ, his whole life was leading up to this hour. The whole purpose of the incarnation and the perfect obedience of Christ was that he should lay it down upon the cross. Consider a few scriptures. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. 
the Old Testament is very clear that when the servant of the Lord comes, he comes to die for sin. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, Isaiah writes and says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The prophets bear witness to the sufferings of Christ. But not only do the prophets bear witness to this, the historical books do as well. Turn to 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. The story is that David has sinned a great sin. And God is now punishing the city of Jerusalem with an avenging angel. And David, when he sees this angel killing the people of Judah, David cries out and says, Lord, I'm the one who sinned. Why are these sheep suffering? And so in this chapter, David begins to display the heart of his greater son. David prays and has a concern for the people as a shepherd of the sheep. And his heart of a shepherd says, Lord, I'm the one who's guilty. Why should they suffer? Stop this wrath. And so the Lord says, the Lord provides him an opportunity. Verse 18, Gad came and said, go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Well, David goes up to this place. He finds Aruna uh, threshing out his grain. David says, I have to build an altar to stop the plague. And then Aruna says, take the oxen, take the threshing implements, and take them freely and do what seems best in the eyes of my Lord. But notice how David answered him in verse 24. Then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So notice what's happening in this chapter. Wrath upon the sheep. The, uh, David, as the shepherd, has to offer a costly sacrifice to turn that wrath away. He is typifying his son's own sacrifice. David paid money for this sacrifice. Christ offered himself for this sacrifice. He would not offer to the Lord something that cost him nothing. Not only in the Old Testament, though, but also in the Gospel of John, we have been presented with this idea constantly throughout John's Gospel. There's several places in John's Gospel that reference the death of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 29, chapter 3, 14 through 17. But I want to turn your attention to chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Christ begins, uh, he's been talking about the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does this. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. So you see what Christ is saying. He understood perfectly. The Father has commanded me to die for the sheep. And now the hour has approached, and Christ is tempted, and he prays to his Father, 
and he reasons with himself. This temptation is not right. I cannot give in to this fear because this is the very purpose for which I've been sent. And then in verse 28, Christ concludes his prayer and says, Father, glorify your name. My safety, even my own life, is not more important than the glory of the name of the Father. And so Christ, in preparation for his work, prays to his Father to glorify himself through this work. Notice in verses 27 and 28 how the Lord Jesus prays the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember what the Lord's Prayer starts off with? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's exactly what Christ is saying here. Father, glorify your name. Your will be done, not my will. He's praying the Lord's Prayer. What a great encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, to pray the same kind of prayer. I I want to encourage you. Maybe your prayer life is not what you hope it could be. Maybe your prayer life is not what it ought to be. The disciples came to Christ and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And the Lord said, okay, pray this way. And he gave us the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is not only a model of prayer, it's... It gives us all the essential things we should pray for, the glory of God, his will to be done, the kingdom expanded, our provision, forgiveness of sins, forgiving one another, deliverance from the power of Satan, and glory to God forever and ever. It gives us all the essential points of prayer, but the Lord's Prayer itself is a proper prayer. You can use the words of the Lord's Prayer for your own prayers if you do it with faith and sincerity not as an empty repetition of vain words, but as a sincere help in your prayers. The Lord Jesus Christ prays this way, and I think his example is probably a good one to follow. Well, he prays the Lord's Prayer. Uh, He prays in the same manner as the Lord's Prayer. And then the Father answers him. One of the few times that God the Father speaks audibly in the Gospels. He spoke at the baptism... He spoke at the transfiguration, and he speaks here on the eve of Christ's great work. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The father answers his son's prayer, I think, for a couple of reasons. First, showing his approval of the prayer. Christ makes this prayer, and he concludes by saying, Father, glorify your name. The father answers with a resounding yes and amen. Isn't it interesting? It's like, it's like a prayer meeting of the Trinity. Christ is leading in prayer, and after Christ concludes, the Father says amen as his Son is praying to him to be glorified. I think not only is the Father giving approval to the prayer, but the Father's answer is an encouragement to the human nature of Christ. Now, we're going to get into some Christology here, so put your Christology hats on. Christ is the eternal Son of God who came and took to himself a true human nature united together in one person. There is only one Christ, God and man, forever in the person of the Son. However, sometimes in the Scriptures, when Christ is being referred to 
Sometimes he's being referred to in his divinity. Sometimes he's being talked about as the divine son of God, sovereign of all things, the creator of heaven and earth. Other times, Christ is presented to us in his human nature. We're not seeing the divine aspect of Christ here for one simple reason. God does not pray. God does not need to pray because he's God. But men pray. Christ prayed. And if Christ prayed, Christ needed encouragement as a man. Christ needed to be strengthened as a man to accomplish the work he was sent to do. There's another episode of this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ prays, great drops of blood come out, and the Gospel of Luke records that as he prayed, Father, not my will but yours be done, angels came and strengthened him. This is referring to his human nature. I think that's what's going on here as well. The Father answers Christ to approve the prayer, but also to encourage Christ in his work. He gives a resounding yes and amen to what Christ prays. John, in his letter, tells us this about prayer. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15, John writes this. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Do you want your prayer life to grow? Do you want to know that your prayers are being heard? Pray the things that God says he will answer. Pray according to God's will. Pray for the things that God loves, and he will answer that prayer every single time. Now, what are the things that God loves? What is the will of God for your life? Sanctification and growth in grace. You pray those prayers, you will see those answers because God delights in holiness and he delights in the maturity of his people. So the Lord Jesus Christ prays in preparation for his work. Now, not only does he pray in preparation for the cross, but as we're going to learn in the very next section, at the very next verse, the people stood by and heard it and said, it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus says to them, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. This, this whole Trinitarian prayer meeting was not primarily for the Son of God. It was primarily for the people who are watching. For the people who are watching, they can be encouraged and learn how to pray. You know, Christ told us, pray so that you enter not into temptation. As he was going into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, his disciples went with him, and he said, pray that you enter not into temptation. Christ gives us an example right here of what that looks like. If you are tempted in any way, pray in this way. Whatever temptation is upon you right now, whatever temptation may hit you tomorrow or the next day, pray that you enter not into temptation. Now, what's involved in Christ's prayer that helps him avoid the temptation? First, recognizing that he's tempted. He, he knows what's going on in his own heart. He's aware of his soul being troubled. We need to be aware of what's going on in our hearts. You know, there may be some times in your life 
where there's emotions that are there, maybe fear, anger, frustration, sadness, they can be in your heart and in your soul, and, and you may not realize that they're there in the background, coloring everything that's going on in your life. We need to become more sensitive to what goes on in our hearts. I believe the book of Proverbs says, guard your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. Christ is aware that he's being tempted. He recognizes these thoughts are a temptation. And then he begins to reason with himself. He begins to ask questions. Let's see, I'm being tempted to do this thing, but this thing is not according to my purpose. I have not been put on the world to avoid the cross. I've been put on the world to die on the cross. Likewise for you and I. The reason God has saved you is not so that you can continue sinning. The reason God has saved you is not so you can disobey Him, but it's so that you can obey Him. It's so that you can, as Paul says in Romans 6, present your members as instruments of righteousness. Present yourselves as slaves of righteousness, and you will have the reward eternal life. So Christ begins to reason with Himself. Now, here's something that this challenges all of us on. If you're going to recognize temptation and recognize how to reason with yourself, you have to know the Word of God. You have to know what your purpose is. You have to know what God's will is for your life. Paul says in Ephesians 5, do not be unwise, but wise, knowing what the will of God is for your life. You've got to know the Scriptures, just as Christ did. So Christ recognizes the temptation. He reasons with himself, and then he concludes his prayer by saying the most important thing is that God be glorified in this situation. The most important thing I can do right now in the midst of this temptation is glorify God, not gratify myself. Gratifying myself is not the chief end of man. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And in this way, Christ is able to escape the temptation. I challenge you, if you begin to pray in this way, God will give you a yes and an amen to your prayers. You will see Him delivering you from temptation in ways you perhaps thought not possible. Well, Christ prays for His work, but then Christ begins to teach about His work. That's what happens in the next section, starting in verse 31. Christ begins teaching about His work, and He says two things about what His work will accomplish. The first is that through His work, Satan will be defeated. That's what He says in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Up until the death of Christ, Satan was, as it were, the ruler of the world. Now, he's a tyrant. He has usurped authority that does not belong to him. But ever since Adam and Eve listened to the lies of Satan, Satan usurped authority over the world and reigned like a tyrant over the nations. The reason that tyrants are able to maintain their power is not because it's just or right. It's because they're stronger than the people that they rule over. Likewise with Satan. When man was in his sins, Satan ruled tyrannically over them. 
We know this because of paganism. Paganism was Satan's great work among the nations, deceiving them to believe in false gods. Today, after the cross, paganism is dead. There is no power in paganism anymore. I know there are people today who want to pretend that they worship Odin. They want to pretend that they worship Zeus. This is a growing phenomenon. But the irony of ironies is that Zeus and Odin have already been defeated. There is no worship of Odin anymore. There is no worship of these pagan gods. Well, that was during the time of Satan's reign. Christ now says, through my work, I am going to cast him out. He will be defeated. Notice that he says he's going to be defeated through judgment. The judgment of this world is at hand, and the ruler of this world will be cast out through the judgment of the cross. There's two things to keep in mind here. One, the cross displays the wrath of God against the works of Satan. That is, sin. At the cross, God displayed his unmitigated hatred, judgment, and wrath upon all the works of Satan. We can say it this way. At the cross, God showed Satan, I'm more powerful than you. I can overthrow the tyrant whenever I want to. And he chose to at the cross. The second thing that the uh, judgment of the cross shows us, not only does it show God's wrath against the works of Satan and that God is more powerful than the tyrant, but it also shows God's mercy towards sinners and God's ability to deliver the slaves of Satan from his thraldom. It shows God's ability to judge sin and forgive sinners all by maintaining his perfect righteousness through the cross of Christ. This is the defeat of Satan. Because Satan's kingdom is built on sin and, uh, sin and avoiding wrath. The whole reason Satan's kingdom is upheld is because people are tempted to sin and deceived into thinking God will never judge you. At the same time, those who become the slaves of Satan are also told, God will never forgive you. That's one of Satan's lies. You are guilty. God hates you. There is no hope for you. Keep sinning. That's how Satan's tyranny is maintained. And Christ at the cross defeats both of them. Satan's works are destroyed. Sinners are forgiven and delivered from his kingdom. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. You don't need to turn there. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. He says that at one time, we, by nature, were children of wrath, just as the others, serving the spirit of the power of the air, who works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also had our conduct fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, Paul says that about himself, a religious Jew. We all were the servants of Satan, but God, who is rich in mercy delivered us through the work of Christ. So Christ says, my work is going to defeat Satan. Not only is it going to defeat Satan, it's also going to be the salvation of the world. Look at what he says in the next verse. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. John gives us the comment in verse 33. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. To be lifted up is a phrase, especially in John, that talks about the cross of Christ. John chapter 3, he says, just as Moses lifted up 
the serpent in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. So lifted up refers to the crucifixion. Notice that Christ uses this phrase to talk about the cross. And what he's saying is that when Christ, when he himself is crucified, that will draw all men to him. The death of Christ is what draws men to believe in Christ. It's not only the fact of the cross, 2,000 some odd years ago, that Christ is referring to, but he, he also refers to, or it also contains within itself the power of the cross that is manifest today. Turn with me to Ephesians uh, no, turn with me to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Paul in this passage is speaking about his preaching ministry. If you want a little bit more reference on this, look at Ephesians 2. Uh, 17, 18, and 19. Paul makes the same point in that passage. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Paul is speaking about the power of the gospel. And I want you to notice, not, not the power of the gospel, the power of preaching. The power of preaching is nothing less than the power of the cross. Look at what he says. I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should be not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When Paul says that his preaching was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, he's saying that his preaching was a demonstration of the power of the cross. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to recognize this and marvel in this. The power of preaching is nothing less than the same divine power that was displayed in the crucifixion of the Son. That is why when preaching is blessed by the Spirit, men's hearts are drawn to Christ not because of the power of the preacher, not because of persuasive words of human wisdom, but because of the power of the crucified Son who was lifted up on Calvary and is lifted up week after week in the pulpits of God's churches. That is the power of preaching. And that's what Christ is referring to. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Now, first off, in your life, recognize what preaching is. Preaching is, as Paul says in Galatians 3, a billboard in front of your faces of the power of the cross. And for one particular reason. Paul says this several times in his letters. The reason preaching is the power of the cross in your midst is because the man who is preaching behind the pulpit was and is himself a sinner was and has been delivered from bondage in Satan's kingdom. 
the man who preaches is himself a display of what the cross can do by delivering him from his sins. Paul says this constantly. He says, I was at one time a blasphemer, but God had mercy on me and made me a minister. Paul says that I was the least of the apostles, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and I labored more diligently than they all. And so preaching is the power of the gospel in the man that is doing the preaching. Secondly, knowing that preaching is the power of the gospel. Preaching ought to be central in your life, but we also need to pray, as Christ taught us in John chapter 4, for the Lord to raise up laborers in his harvest. The only way that the gospel advances is not through slick websites, it's not through slick video editing, it's not through slick audio mixing, it's not through slick flyers, it's not through um, slick programs. The only way that the gospel advances in power is through preaching. It's through men ordained to preach and die, and the next generation comes and they preach and they die. That's what you need to be praying for. That's what you need to be laboring for. And perhaps some of you are being called by God to be preachers. Who knows? The Spirit works when and where He wants. He may want some of you to go out into His fields and preach His gospel. Consider these things because as Christ said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to Myself. And so Christ teaches us about His work, what it will do in defeating Satan and saving the world. Now, just to, before we go on to the next part, just keep in mind what the context is all about. This is how the name of the Father is glorified. God the Father gets glory through the cross of Christ by defeating Satan and saving sinners. That's what Christ is teaching us about His work. But now He goes on to talk about His person. As Christ is, is teaching them about the cross and teaching them what He's going to do, the people answered Him in verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? When the Jews refer to the law in this way, they're talking about all of the Old Testament, not just the five books of Moses or even the Ten Commandments. They're referring to all of the Old Testament. And when they ask this question, we need to recognize that this is a carnal question. We just read a couple of passages from the Old Testament that prove that Christ will die. Isaiah 53, the most prominent of them, of them all. Uh, and the people say, but the law says that Christ remains forever. And what they're doing with this question is they're trying to trip up Christ. They're asking a carnal question. They cite the law, but they're reading the law carnally. Pardon me. They're reading the law in a carnal fashion. Now, what does carnality mean? What does it mean to be carnal? Carnal in the scriptures refers to those that are in rebellion against God. To be carnal means to be in your flesh, self-indulgent, seeking your own glory and your own pleasure, not seeking the glory of God and the pleasure of God. 
And so these people, when they cite the law, they're reading it carnally because they don't recognize the Christ must die. You see, just like the Jews throughout all the gospel history, when Christ comes, they were all expecting a king like David to defeat the Romans. They were expecting a conqueror to come. And in John chapter 6, when, when they see that he can produce food miraculously, they wanted to make him a king right now. Because as you learn from history, an army fights on its stomach. And the first army that runs out of food is usually the first army that loses. And so they want to make him a king by force and have him conquer the Romans, throw them out of the promised land, and establish the kingdom through the force of war. This is a carnal way of thinking. Well, we see it again here. The law says that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? There are many who read the Scriptures with a carnal understanding. There are many in our day throughout the church that read the Scriptures carnally. As I mentioned, to read the Scriptures carnally... Uh, uh, first off, we need to understand what it means to read the Scriptures spiritually. What does it mean to read the Scriptures spiritually? Well, it means to keep the chief and highest end of man in the forefront of our reading. And the chief and highest end of man is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. But it's also to keep this purpose of the Scriptures in mind as well. Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer number four says that one of the ways that the Bible manifests itself to be the Word of God is by the majesty and purity, by the, uh, by the, by the uh, consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. You see, they're recognizing that in the Scriptures, one of the ways it manifests itself to be the Word of God is that the Scriptures always give all glory to God. And so when we read the Scriptures, we have to read it with that in mind. My duty is to glorify God. The Scriptures glorify God. That's how I read the Bible. To read it carnally, however, is to change these things, is to assume that the purpose of man and the purpose of the Scriptures is to glorify man. There's many examples of this in the Scriptures. I'll just... Uh, Turn to 1, Proverbs 25, 27. Proverbs 25, 27. Solomon writes, It is not good to eat much honey, so to seek one's own glory is not glory. Solomon writes this proverb and he recognizes this is a temptation for men to seek our own glory, to, to exalt ourselves. This is a real problem today. Reading the Scriptures with a carnal mindset. You see it in all different kinds of heresies in the church, all throughout history, but you see it in particular heresies today. Probably the worst heresy today that we have out there is the heresy of critical theory. Now, how does critical theory glorify man? Well, it glorifies man in a perverse way. It glorifies the victim. The victim of oppression is the exalted one. 
The one who has suffered is the one who gets a voice. The one who has endured injustices in whatever area of life they come up with, they are the ones who are exalted. And then they go to the Scriptures and say, look, see, the Bible says that God delivers the oppressed. God uh, is close to the brokenhearted. Victims are brokenhearted. Victims are oppressed. You see, the Bible supports us. You see how this works? They read it carnally. They read it to glorify man. Here's something you need to keep in mind. This is a good rule of thumb for you. Whenever somebody comes to you with a doctrine that does not exalt Christ unequivocally, but instead exalts man in some way, reject it. You don't need to worry about it. If, if they in some way exalt man's efforts, man's victimhood, man's wisdom, man's wealth, man's whatever, and they say nothing about the power of the work of Christ, it's a false doctrine. Don't follow it. They're reading the Scriptures carnally. Well, the people are reading these things carnally. They, they ask Christ a carnal question. Christ gives them a spiritual answer. Notice that Christ avoids their trap by not debate, debating with a vain interpretation. Look at what he says. Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light. Very interesting. They ask him this theological question, who is the Son of Man? Who is the person of Christ? Christ says, walk in the light while you have the light. He doesn't take the bait because he recognizes they're carnal. Instead of debating them, rather he exhorts them to believe in his person while they still have time. Look at what he says. A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. You see, what Christ is describing in this, in this uh, passage here as he answers their question, see, he's saying to them, you ask me this question, this carnal question, and it's painfully obvious to me that the darkness of sin and ignorance has clouded your minds such that you cannot see the glory of God in my person and work. You cannot see where you're going because you cannot see the light of the glory of God. Believe in the light while you still have opportunity, lest darkness overtake you, lest the light of the sun is put out for you in hell forever. Christ is telling them, repent and believe, because if you don't, you will walk in darkness without the light of the glory of God. The one who walks in darkness like this doesn't know where they're going. They're aimless and lost. They have no purpose in life. Christ is the light which gives, uh, Christ is the light which gives direction to men in seeking the glory of God. I think this is probably characteristic of our verse in, uh, of our generation in more ways than one. Maybe it's characteristic of your life at different seasons. You find yourself going through life thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've got X, Y, and Z to accomplish. I've got one, two, and three to call back. I've got A, B, and C to knock out of the park. I've got all this stuff going on, but I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. Ever feel that way? That may be because the darkness has overtaken you. 
Maybe because in your personal life, you're, you're losing sight of the light. You're losing sight of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here is that you need to walk in the light. You need to follow the light so that you know where you're going. It's very descriptive of our generation. It may be descriptive of your life. Be reminded, your purpose is to glorify God. And the glory of God is clearly displayed to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you believe in His person and walk in His light, you will know where you're going. You will understand what you're supposed to be doing. Secondly, on this section, notice that Christ tells them to believe in His person. He doesn't say, believe in my work. Believe in my person. He described His work in the previous section. Now we get to this section, and He says, believe in the light. Who is the light? Christ is the light. He says it over and over again. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. At the beginning of the gospel, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. All things were made through Him. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Christ is the light, and He says, believe in the light. Brothers and sisters, covenant children especially, this is what saving faith is. Saving faith is not believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins. It's believing in the Christ who died for your sins. It's believing in Christ, not in the cross alone. Many people think this is what salvation is. I trust that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Satan trusts that too. What Satan does not trust is the light. He does not walk in the light and is therefore not a child of light. All of God's works display His glory. The heaven, the earth, your body, your soul, everything around you displays the glory of God. Creation and providence are the two great lanterns of God's glory in the world. But the light of these two lanterns shines dimly like the sun on an overcast day. Only in the work and person of the Son through His death on the cross, removing our sins, defeating Satan, and gathering all the elect to Himself, does the glory of God penetrate the clouds of sin to shine upon us the life-giving glory which was the whole mission of the Son. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know the glory of God, look to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will see glories beyond your imagining. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Son, that You gave Him commandment, and that He was obedient to that commandment. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would shine upon us the light of His glory ever and always and cause us to walk in Your light, for in Your light we see light. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.